talking about moving in and I don't want to change your life, but there's a warm wind blowing the stars around and I'd really love to listen to Stick to Wrestling tonight. That's not the worst one. It's in the team picture. My name is John McAdam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast. Sure, there are some good wrestling podcasts out there. Some of them are really good. But are they wicked good? Is Stick to Wrestling the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there? Tell you what, let's ask the guys from Devo. Hey, are we not men? Those guys are the experts. And with that, I want to bring on our convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you so far? Fantastic. And Facebook, join. It's wonderful. And, uh, you know... You need to uh, join today because we have, because it's just, it's good for you. It gives you goals, gives you, you know, gives you hopes, gives you direction. Well, maybe not, but it does, it does give you results from John and our group watches. There you go. Every Sunday, uh, we get together on Facebook and we watch something either on WWE Network or on YouTube. It's, it's actually been exclusively WWE Network. But that might change this week, depending on what we've got. So while we are talking about our media platforms, our social media platforms, pardon me, I need everyone to smarten up and follow me on Twitter. There's plenty of wrestling content. I don't strictly stick to wrestling. And as a matter of fact, for about three minutes, I'm not going to stick to wrestling. I'm going to be kind of brief on this, but... My Twitter timeline and my Facebook timeline are kind of flooded right now with people angry at the Major League Baseball players because they are not going for a deal that the owners have offered them. And of course, fans being fans, they cry and they call the players greedy and all this other nonsense. Sean, let me ask you a question. I want your honest opinion on this. If the baseball players, and the baseball owners came to an agreement as far as what the baseball players would make back in April. And the baseball players, a month later, say, no, we don't want to do that deal anymore. What would you think of the players? I see A and B. Which one is I don't give a rat's ass? Is that C? Uh, that's D. Why? All right. I mean, you, you, like, if you enter into an agreement with person a person a month ago, and they're like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, that's kind of a crappy thing to do, right? I guess. See, th- this, is, this is what happens when you have to follow the usually most unlikable baseball team in the history of, you know, baseball, the Boston Red Sox. I was going to say, all the Mets. Back in there, who are back in their obnoxious phase again. You know, they, that's how they work. Like, they have that, like, six, from 67 to 72, where they were kind of fun. Then they got to the 24 Cavs for 24 guys. Then they got fun for a couple of years in the mid-80s, back to the old ways. They had a couple of fun years in the early 2000s, and here we are again. All right, my, my point's getting maligned over here. But I'm saying that the players went against that deal they made with the owners. Like I would be like, wow, you know, that's kind of a crappy thing to do, players. Well, guess what? It's the owners that did it. They just came to an agreement last month about how the players would be compensated due to the reduced schedule. They would pay them proratedly. Uh, basically, if they play 50 games, they only get paid for 50 games. And now the greedy owners want more, and they are taking advantage of this pandemic to screw the baseball players. And I want everyone who listens to this podcast to be 100% 
on the side of the MLBPA. I am why, done with sticking to wrestling. Why is Alex Rodriguez not a Boston was not a Boston Red Sox? Because uh, there were two reasons. Number one, the union wouldn't let Alex Rodriguez leave money on the table because that would be against the interest of all six hundred something Major League Baseball players. Number two, the union offered a counteroffer, and the uh, the owners of the Red Sox turned it down. Those Why wasn't Joe Rudy and Raleigh Fingers members of the Boston Red Sox? Uh, because if you want the real answer, it's because the commissioner of baseball, whatever that clown's name was, had a grudge against the A's owner, Charlie Finley. This stupidity has been going on for over 100 years. What's that, that idiot's name? I forget his name. I Louis hate Kuhn. Louis Kuhn, thank you. <laughs> all right, ah, Luke gets it already. Um, all right, so I'm done not sticking to wrestling, but I mean, the point is, you know, the players entered into an agreement in good faith. The owners are not acting in good faith. So, what are we talking about this week, Sean? Actually, one last line. I'm going to uh, paraphrase the great Brandon Rice, who said a very sage, fo- uh, uh, very sage thing when he said, "You know what? So when the old folks are arguing." Just stay out of the way. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll be more polite. When the elders are arguing, just stay out of the way. I'm going to say it here. When the rich folks are arguing, just stay out of the way. Uh, this interferes with Don't my Don't get yourself upset with it, you know? They'll this, figure it out because it interferes with their pocketbook, more importantly. so This is interfering with my entertainment. I want the owners to knock it off and let me have my baseball. Anyway, what, what are we talking about this week? What wrestling stuff are we going to be talking about this week? We are going to talk about the most shocking things that we've ever seen. And uh, we, uh, they're mostly positive. I'm insisting on having one negative here because, I mean, I just that's too much positive. Right. And uh, unless, except for my bitching about yours. But most of them are actually positive, though. But the thing we want to stick to is in the ring. We actually talked about this ahead of time and agreed immediately. Nothing like depressing stuff that happened that, you, you know, the, the 10 bells or something like that. Just yeah. like uh, we're talking like angles and stuff. Right. Our most surprising moments in wrestling, like we're not going to talk about, yeah, it was definitely surprising when Owen fell about, you know, five stories and we're, we're going to keep it, try to keep it more positive yeah. than that. So, Sean, would you like to start? Uh, sure. Uh, okay, I, I, two. I'm sorry. Yeah. The, the way John, did, we're going to use McAdam math. Uh, so we're going to go two, three, four, five, and then back to one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. But anyway. So number two is, I believe this was 1982, Georgia Championship Wrestling, Roddy Piper turning on Don Morocco in defense of Gordon Soli. This was just well done. It was, and it, it came up with kind of a slow build. And I mean, you know, back then, had I been older and wiser, I would have known from day one that Roddy Piper was turning babyface. But when you saw it, have it happening live, it was a shock. You had the perfect response. If you were doing angle properly, the perfect response should be shock followed up by, of course, of course. That's because you should be planting little hints. And the hint here was that Roddy was rude and disrespectful to everybody but Gordon. That was the one person he, he, tra- he called him Mr. Soli the whole time, I believe. Yes. That was the one person he was respectful for. It just very well done. Okay. Um, I agree with you 100%. I think that... Um... You know, I, I should have known better. I mean, Roddy had pretty much done that, well, his entire career. I mean, I know he did it in Portland, started off as a heel and then turned babyface. And then he did it in Georgia and Mid-Atlantic at the same time, two different angles. 
And then he obviously, when he went to the WWF, I knew it was only going to be a matter of time before he turned babyface. I, I actually think they kind of waited too long to turn babyface, to be honest with you. I mean, it's kind of a credit for, uh, that they did, but oh, oh, for the WWF, yeah, absolutely. But the, the thing I liked about the Georgia, it was just that it was just, what's the word I'm looking for? When it's done well, it's, I don't mind getting fooled that way. Because at that point, you just tip your hat. You're like, you know what? That was, you got me on that one. Well done. And that's how this was. It was just, everything was well done. I wasn't paying enough attention and boom, they got you. And it was, it made perfect sense at the end of the day. And it led on. Unfortunately, that feud did not last long, did it? Uh, no, Morocco went back to the WWF. Uh, Roddy, when did Roddy get fired? He got fired right around, I want to say October, November of, of 1982. That would have been tremendous. Yeah, and but uh, uh, Morocco, he Morocco seemed to be on a trip at this time, like after the WWF, where he just didn't. I don't know. He was in. He was in Mid Atlantic Wrestling. He won a fictional West Coast version of the NWA Tag Team Title Tournament with Wahoo McDaniel. Wow. Then he turned. Yeah. Then he turned on Wahoo, and then he disappeared, and then he disappeared from Georgia too. So. Something tells me McMahon was in his ear. The Georgia, the the one you're talking about when he came in for the tag title tournament, that was because they were setting up their annual we need the Thanksgiving Day tag team title tournament. Ole and somebody got stripped. I can't remember. I think it was uh, I think oh, I think this was when Ole and um I may be wrong, but Ernie Ladd broke up. They split up. And no, eventually was, was it 79? Okay. Yeah. But eventually I think Ole and Stan ended up winning the thing. But this was, yeah, him coming in with Wahoo as the, you know, that was kind of, they're setting up their uh, new tag team championship. Yeah, they, what Ole wanted to do, he was booking both Mid-Atlantic and Georgia. He wanted to establish the NWA tag team titles as being, you know, in the same rare air as the NWA title, where those tag team titles would be defended in various territories and just never came together. But anyway... My second biggest surprise ever. Listen to Sean Goodwin, McAdam Math. I got A's in Trig. I got A's in Pre-Calc. I got A's in Calc. And statistics, darn you. But anyway. You're the accountant. I'm assuming it works. <laughs> there you go. I, I, was, I want to preface mine by saying this. Sometimes being, I don't know, how do I put it? Sometimes knowing people and knowing what's going to happen next sucks as a wrestling fan. Like, like at the top of this for me would have been Paulie Dangerously, Dennis Condry, and Randy Rose attacking Jim Cornette in his Midnight Express and Cornette getting all that color on TV. Unfortunately, someone called me beforehand to say, hey, here's what we're, we're, you're going to see on Saturday. Jake Roberts jumping the rail and joining WCW. I knew about that. Kevin Nash debuting on Nitro. I knew about that. Like that would have been a great surprise. Ric Flair winning the Royal Rumble. I knew that was happening. That would have been a great surprise. But in 1993, Dennis Carluzzo calls me. And I think I've told this story on the show on the show before, but he's like, yo, Johnny Mac, this is going to be a Monday night raw night, buddy. Jerry, the King Lawler. And I was like, whoa, you've got to be kidding me because a that's hell freezing over Jerry Lawler jumping to the WWF. It was unthinkable. But I thought the ramifications of that would be that I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm not trading for Memphis tapes anymore because Memphis just died. There's no way 
Memphis goes on at all another show without Jerry Lawler. And little did I know that Vince McMahon was willing to actually enter into a, you know, uh, an agreement with the USWA where he was going to send talent over there, you know, like Bret Hart, like Randy Savage uh, for the Monday night shows because the WWF wasn't drawing. And in exchange, they would get Jerry Lawler and Lawler was going to be pretty much their top heel in 1993. This should have continued for a long, long time up till today. And why did this not continue? Because this this should have been a beautiful win-win for both of them. You could have had the greenest grass guys heading down to Memphis, learning through guys who knew what they were doing, who can usually kind of guarantee you a decent crowd, who can actually show you like that kind of discipline you have to have. It's, it was perfect. Why did this fall apart? The biggest reason is the Monday Night Wars. Uh, Bischoff put WCW on Monday nights, on Monday nights when they had the you know, the Mid-South Coliseum card, and Vince needed his whole roster on Monday night. So I think that was a, a big factor. You know, back in 93, the WWF was hurting. I mean, you know, they, they kind of needed Memphis, or they could have used Memphis at least a little bit. And now, 95, 90, well, 96, 97, when it starts to rebound, like, they didn't need Memphis anymore. First of all, if they had Memphis right, that little invasion doesn't happen. I don't know, I mean, I don't know about that. This isn't a stab. This isn't like ECW, where uh, like any kind of stupidity can happen to get them into trouble. This is a product that has been putting on shows for God knows how many years. Uh, you know, at this point, this crew basically for twenty years. This is just, it is like a perfect school. We have, almost have to put no money into the thing. Yeah, it just ah, uh, this, this disgusts me. They could the Memphis should be still running shows today. With them propping them up as a minor league, it was perfect. You know what, though? The WWF, the way they're doing WWE now, the way they've been doing it for the last 10, 15 years, like they want you to learn, and right or wrong, they want you to wrestlers to learn the WWF style, the way things are done there. I mean, and they take guys who were big stars, AJ Styles, uh, Shinsei Nakamura. And they basically break them down and make them relearn the WWF style. Again, and right or wrong, they do it. Where, where did the current uh, WWF style come from? Uh, I couldn't even tell you. Memphis. Season through some ECW and stuff like that, but that was a whole attitude ever when that product came rolling through that eventually originated in Memphis. I mean, the home of hardcore. That's where it started. That kind of fast-paced, crazed kind of, you know, I mean, they took it to places where I would have rather they didn't. Yeah. But again, this is just a ma- – and look how many times they tried to replicate it. They tried to do it with OVW in this near the same area, with OVW with Cornette. They tried to do it again in Georgia with uh, Jody Hamilton down there. I'm not sure. I don't remember that. Okay, I thought they had something down there too, but I know they did it with Vince, uh, with uh, Cornette. It just, but it, but Cornette had to establish something that wasn't there. You had something that was already established, and they weren't a threat at that point. No, I mean, and and the WWF went from you know actively trying to wreck the Memphis territory and wreck every other territory to you know, hey, we're allies now, which was, which was really it, it took me aback. By the way, as as to be my biggest, my second biggest surprise, part B was Jim Cornette joining the WWF a few months later, you know, a few months after Lawler came in, which I had been told about. 
But at least this time I knew, well, okay, you know, he's going to send Talon over to Smoky Mountain as opposed to try to wreck them. Okay, so the Lala did have a good run, huh? but he kept going back to Memphis. He, he made most of those shows, even as the heel in WWF. Yeah, he and he did a really good job explaining why he was a heel in the WWF, or at least in his eyes, he wasn't the heel, and he could remain the top babyface in the WWF. That was some. That was actually some really good stuff. Jerry actually has a standard answer for this because he ran into the situation when he had that little mini didn't happen Piper thing in '82. Yeah, and they were asking, and these are on YouTube. They were asking Jerry what happened. Maybe it was '81. You know why he was getting booed. So he he explained. He was like, "Well, I mean, Piper's an idiot." And then when I came back, all of a sudden, everyone likes him. I don't know what happened. So this would have been after Gordon. So now I'm getting crap because I mean, I, he's still a jerk to me. And of course, Memphis is like, "Well, that makes perfect sense." Yeah, that should have been. I, I maybe I talk about this too much. A hint and a half that the world was changing because a lot of people in Memphis were getting WTBS and seeing Jerry Lawler mm-hmm. in a different role. Oh, sure. I mean, and the, and the guys knew this, too. And Flair will tell the story all the time about how he was talking to Harley. He goes, where's my next step career-wise? And he kept telling him, he goes, get on Barnett's TV. So they know. There, there you go. And, and you're right. I mean, I know, for example, I heard a story a long time ago that Buddy Rose and Matt Bourne uh, flew themselves into Atlanta on their own dime because they wanted that exposure so badly. Let me ask you that. I'll, I'll prove it right here. Is Tommy Rich ever NWA champion if WTBS or WC, whatever it was back then? WTBS doesn't exist. Uh, maybe. No. I mean, I mean, Florida didn't have a national cable outlet, and Dusty got the title. Dusty was a bigger, Dusty was a bigger deal for a longer time. Dusty had been a big star in many territories for the better part of a better part of five or five or so years before even being a heel. He was already in the uh, AWA Central States. Texas. These guys all knew him already. I mean, he, outside of Memphis, who knew who Tommy was? Well, I mean, before TBS, no one. But I mean, Dave Meltzer exactly. tells a story that in 82, Piper, not Piper, Tommy Rich wrestled in San Antonio and they had like an extra four or five thousand fans, people seeing him on WTBS. Uh, well, that's I mean, this is my I, again, I'm not taking anything away from Tommy here. I'm, I'm a Tommy. I think he I have no problem with him. If you're going to do this, I have no problem with him getting one of these short runs because he was a big deal. Do not mistake Tommy in 1989 for Tommy in 1981. Different cat. Uh, with that said, uh, again, I still I think that was the extra exposure. WTBS basically ended up eclipsing uh, after. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, if you didn't get mag, if you didn't get magazines, or you didn't live in Florida, you did not know that Dusty had the title for five days or whatever it was. But I, everyone knew Tommy won the belt. Yeah, exactly. All right, what's so, your number three? Three. This is one I'm I'm surprised they didn't try earlier. Buddy Rose's turn in '83. This was again just well done. It was, and it goes to the theory. That the be- biggest faces will be the biggest heels because the passion's there. The the opposite of love isn't hate; it's indifference. Mm-hmm. So uh, once all of a sudden, once Buddy gets on their side, they love the guy with the same passion. It's just he's on their side. And a key thing with Buddy, and they did this with Piper too, was that as opposed to like DiBiase, who somehow makes this work, is that they never changed a thing. And Lala never does this either. They're the same guy. They just 
beating up the guys that you don't like. They'll tone it down a little bit. But they're still, I mean, you'll, Jerry will still reach in and grab like a chain and hold it up and the crowd's cheering. Sure, because the bad uh, guy asked for it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's just the opponent, but that's what they did with Buddy. He was basically the same, same guy. He just was the same guy on their side, and I can't stand those guys too. And it, but it was, it still, it was well done. And, but, and they made it, the key to something like this is that you look at it and you're like, you know what? Yeah, that makes sense. Of course, that's what I would do. I understand he's a bad guy, but I see why he's doing this. And that was the case in both cases and with Rose too. Now I'm trying to remember exactly how Buddy Rose turned baby face, but I remember I didn't like the way it was done. It was like Buddy had brought in, okay, it's, it's coming to me now. Buddy brought in Dynamite Kid as his tag team partner, and he yep. out-hustled Rip, Rip Oliver for his Oliver. services. And yep. then who was Oliver's tag team partner? Mike Miller, I want to say? I, I think I want to say it was Dave Sierra, actually, maybe. But nonetheless, it's, it was, uh, ba- they basically, they were on the same side, Rip, Oliver, and Buddy, and they turned on and Dynamite, and him turned on, uh, turned on Buddy. Well, and... what happened is it was Rip and Buddy kind of had an uneasy truce, okay? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. we're competing against each other, but we're, we're not going to step on each other's toes. It was an alpha dog thing. Right, against... sort of, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, Buddy has his split up with Dynamite. Oliver and his tag team partner run in, and Buddy is holding Dynamite saying, hey, guys, hit him. And instead, they, they attack Buddy Rose. And I think, you know, it was almost like Buddy was left with no friends because of his own being mm-hmm. a heel scumbag. And I just didn't like the way they did that turn. But he did get over as a babyface. Right. Because that kind of the fans wanted it. So it got to a point. The same with Rhodes. When Rhodes turned in 74, it's remembered how they did it. And that's fine. It, and it really doesn't matter. You could have done anything. And the crowd was going to go crazy because they wanted to cheer Dusty. You know, I mean, you you only boo a cool guy for so long. And, you know, I know we have guys listening who do not like Buddy, but Buddy was cool in Portland. So, uh, you know, eventually you want to stop booing the cool guy and start cheering him. And that's why they couldn't once they turned Lawler when they brought him back from the leg. It took them 12 years again before they could turn him heel. Yeah. And even then, I mean, supposedly I heard that Lawler had an idea to do with WCW what he eventually wound up doing with the WWF. Like he wanted to go on TV and show them that he could be an effective heel and thus get a run against Ric Flair, which I, I, you know, I could, I could have told you back then probably wasn't going to happen, but just like was- turning Austin, just like turning Flair and Charlotte, people don't want to boo their heroes. And I mean, that's why it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, you know what though? Like the way they turn buddy, it worked. At, at the end of the day, it worked. But to me, if you're at a blackjack table and you hit on 20 and you get an ace, you defied the odds. You want to you want to go with the odds whenever you can. Anyway, my number two, I got to look at my notes here. Oh, here's a good one. I think I've told the story on the show before. I remember the date. It was October 18th, 1978. And I was in New York visiting family. and. I stayed up late and I watched the WOR Midnight Wrestling Show. And Bob Backlund had been teaming with High Chief Peter Maivia, and they were going after the tag team titles. Now, in a way, this makes no sense. Backlund was already WWF champion. You can't do that, but whatever. 
And I remember at like 12.55, they had Bob Backlund, Peter Maivia against Spiros Arion and Victor Rivera. And Maivia from the start began acting heelish. I should have picked up on this. I mean, the guy grew a mustache. That's, you know, that's them telling you he's turning heel. And from the start of the match, Maivia seemed like he was in a bad mood. He was arguing with Arnold Skoland. And finally, right around like 12.58, he started pounding on Arnold Skoland. Then he went after Backlund. Then he went to the back with Fred Blassie. And I had been watching wrestling for three years, and it was the first turn I had ever seen. You know, now the guys turn every week. They've been doing that for 20 years. But I had never seen a turn before, and I knew what they were from the magazines, and I could not get to sleep until like 4, 4.30 in the morning. I was so revved up over seeing this turn. Peter, I, maybe it's just because my, all my experience with Peter, and this I would have seen this years later. I, was, I would have been three. My experience with Peter is always as a heel. He's one of these guys who I guess you can be a face if you have to, like Stan Hansen, but he's just a better heel. So when I see him out there, he did this little dancing bit mm-hmm. on the ring, you know, of course, because, you know, we got to turn into a clown show a little bit. And I'm, I'm watching, I'm just sitting there like, okay, when's he turning? Obviously, this isn't going to last. I mean, you can't, you know, you're not going to roll this, you know, legendary tough guy who with these insane tattoos out here is a baby face all the time unless you're going to turn him into like a steve austin type of guy and they didn't do that so at that point you're like okay it's a matter of time they're going through the gorilla monsoon uh feeder system you know what like we talk about you know every week we kind of tip the hat to raw bone sweet hansen or my via was a guy like his nickname when he was a baby face was part of his name like, he was happy-go-lucky Peter Maivia, and I'm not mm. kidding. It was, like, part of his name, and I was just shocked when he turned. I don't think he had ever been a heel before that. I could be wrong, but he was a babyface in San Francisco. He was a babyface yeah. in the AWA. Then he comes to the WWF, and I was surprised. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that's, I knew he was in San Francisco because that's, <laughs> that's where the Samoans came from. Because they were such big fans in the crowd, they basically be threatened Pat Patterson. Oh, yeah. So they like, oh, yeah, we might as well hire him. Lou just pointed out, that's right, Bob Backlund screaming, I'm going to kill that son of a bitch. And the background was crazy. I remember that being like, wow, Backlund's really f- freaked out. Don't you just assume after a while, when you see some new friendly guy come into the territory, that he's going to, you know, he's going to screw somebody? No, and I'll because tell you why. a big name. I can tell you, I, I had never seen it. I had never seen it before. Three years had come and gone, and I had never seen that like sweetheart, nice guy, baby face all of a sudden turn. It never happened. Arian, Arian, Arian was before my time. I knew about Arian. I knew about Valiant, but I had never seen it. There's okay. a difference between seeing it and reading it in the magazine. What did you miss uh, the Arian turn by months? By you months. When you were starting one, yeah, it would have been okay. Okay, because that would have been the last time they rolled that up. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, it's like everything else in in wrestling and probably in life, the less you do it, the more effective it is. Absolutely. What what does uh, Cornette say, the seven-year rule? What's the seven-year rule? Like, if you're going to do a major angle, wait seven years. Oh, okay, before you repeat it. that that You know what? Northeast, that's probably more like four or five years back in the day. Because the Dusty Finish, uh, they used to do that in St. Louis. Quite not often, but I mean, they would do it enough where you noticed it, but they didn't do it enough. They would do it with, but I know they did it with Buddy Rogers and um, John Paul Hanning, 
And then it was like several years later, and then they did something with, oh shoot, who's who's the guy that Dory Funk beat? Uh, for the title, Harley Race. No, um, Dory Funk. Oh, excuse me, Kaniski. Kaniski, yeah. Then Kaniski did it with somebody else. Now, if you're going to do that once every four or five years, it's going to be very effective. When you're doing it every night for two months, it's going to get old and annoying. I got to tell you, I don't know about the St. Louis thing because Larry Matisic said that they did the Dusty finish one night. Uh, I think it was Bruiser Brody against Ric Flair, and Matisic said it killed the town. As a matter of fact, one of my friends, Steve Walsh, hope you're listening, told me that when the AWA did the Dusty finish with Bockwinkle and Hogan in like April 83, like it didn't kill the town, but like people, you know, they weren't, oh man, Hogan got screwed. They were like, no, we got screwed. Well, no, no, no. With I, I don't remember the circumstances with the Brody one. They had been running out a similar finish to that, just figuring out every which way to screw Hogan out of the belt. And that and Super Sunday was like the meltdown point. That was the problem. Even uh, Virtue, when done to an extreme, becomes a vice. Okay, and the greatest thing in the world is going to become terrible if you do it a million times in a row. No, and right. that was definitely the case with Hogan. They, they kept screwing him over and over again, and finally Super Sunday was the meltdown. They created their own blow-off. Yeah, yeah. By accident. <laughs> with Hogan going, well, Hogan, right after that, he went to Japan, and yeah. you know, they kind of wrote that into the storyline, but he wasn't long for the AWA. We're already at number four. Sean, what's your number four? My number four is Steve Austin showing up in ECW. Now, ECW, like, Steve wasn't Steve anywhere near Steve yet, but he was still a reasonably big deal. And ECW was not. I mean, I mean you, you saw Mick, and you know, Mick was Mick, and you know, Terry was... Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of, you know, some guy has a wrestling match in his backyard, and it's Joey from down the block and Terry. Uh, you know, it's just, I, nothing Terry does is going to surprise me. He's like Dave Collins. You'll like see him in a cab. You're like, hey, Dave, you know, hey, Terry. So that doesn't, but Steve was like legitimate. And he comes in and he's something completely different. And, and, and just, it, there was like an energy to him that it was, you almost felt it like being held in, but it was just this kind of almost crazy. And almost immediately, I saw like, I got the videos from you actually. Almost immediately, I was just transfixed by this. I was like, oh, that's why it got me back to the WWF with Steve going there because I went to check him out. But that transformation of him going from there, even A, showing up, and then B, going off on these just crazy, goofy rants. And I find out, this this shows how smart he is, that why I always thought it was Paul, for some reason, who didn't want to give Steve the belt. Years later, Paul says, no, it was Steve. He says, it's the chase. Yeah, I mean, the WWF was in its own wrestling war, and I was not surprised when I heard that Steve was going there. And I mean, I, I talked about this last week. I mean, when they gave him Ted DiBiase as a manager, I'm like, okay, this is going to be good. These guys seem like they'll be good together. And they, they I was like, oh, they're going to screw it up. Oh, it's not going to hurt. I love Ted, too. But I'm like, yo, you're going to hit him with like some kind of goofy gimmick and something like that. Like, what are you doing? This is what got him into trouble at WCW. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and, you know, ultimately, Letting Steve Austin be Steve Austin was the right way to yep. go. That's just kind of not how the WWF did things. Yeah, but I have more slack for WCW here because they didn't know any better. WWF did know better because they saw it in ECW and they still went against it. <laughs> you know what? I mean, sometimes it, it's all about control. 
And and that's, you know, not to get back on the baseball players, but with the owners, it's not even about money. It's about control. And the WWF is like that. Yeah. But that to me, that was one of those things that was a pleasant, like, oh, wow, I can't. Is that that really Steve? But yeah, I mean, he was great. He wasn't there long. It seems it seems longer now looking back on it, but it wasn't long at all. No, it, it was electrifying. I, he probably I'm thinking back. He probably only made like four or five TV appearances on those little vignettes he used to do with the Monday Night Quill and with the wigs and the whole yeah. bit. Oh, it was it was just like, oh, okay, this is what I'm looking for. This is much, much better. And then he goes back and they do the same thing to him. That unfortunately was shocking a little, but then I thought about him like, that's what they do. Like you said, it's just, it's just so stupid. But the game plan was laid right before them. Yeah, I mean, I used to get ECW tapes every six weeks and during this time. And before I even got to see Steve Austin in ECW, it had already been announced that he was going to the WWF. So you're right. It did not last long, but you got to think about it. This is probably something that Vince McMahon, you know, Pat Patterson, whoever thinks is going to be the greatest thing they've ever done. Steve, we're going to make you the million dollar champion under Ted DiBiase. You're going to get like his glow. And it really did sound good at the time. And then they rolled it out there. And it's like, these guys do not have any chemistry whatsoever. All right, we'll go with my number three surprise. And it really was a surprise at the time. The WWF 1986 brings in the Honky Tonk Man as a baby face. And the fans absolutely rebel against it. I, I was shocked because WWF audiences were downright Pavlovian in their responses. Oh, this guy's a good guy. Well, I'll like him. Honky Tonk Man was the one exception. I know it's on WWE Network. I just thought of this. They had a match from Toronto with Honky Tonk Man against Mr. X, who was Danny Davis, in Toronto. And Toronto had the coolest fans in the world because any time Honky Tonk Man would be on offense, they started booing and booing loudly. I want to say this is like on one of the December 1986 versions of primetime wrestling. And it's awesome. Seek it out. If you have not seen it, maybe even relive it if you have seen it. So finally, they give up on Honky Tonk Man, not in general, which I thought they should have done, but they give up on him as a babyface and they turn him heel. They give him Jimmy Hart as manager and they do a bit of a double, not really a double turn because he was already a heel. He had Jimmy Hart with him, but he attacks Jake Roberts on the snake pit. And now Jake is a baby face. And by the way, supposedly Honky Tonk really messed him up with that guitar. And Jake started going downhill quickly from there. That's at least what I've heard. The surprise. They have Jake Roberts against the Honky Tonk Man at WrestleMania 3. I had a ton of people over at my place watching WrestleMania 3. And we had a WrestleMania 3 pool where, you know, you put in a few dollars and you kind of bet on or select who you think is going to win the matches. I think there were 10 people who participated in the pool. All 10 of them, including myself, picked Jake Roberts to win that match. Figured, you know, Honky Tonk's going to get the DDT and they're just going to get him out of the promotion. No, Honky Tonk Man goes over. And that was a huge taking the breath out of the room surprise. That is my number three. Sean, any thoughts from you on that? This is a good example of what makes Vince for good and bad what he is. 
uh, as we were talking about before, to bring in Wayne Ferris as a heel, that's like bringing in like Dennis Condry actually as a lover boy. <laughs> you know, actually having him, you know, with the permed hair and coming in like a Val Venus kind of a guy. That's the same kind of obtuseness that not knowing what you're looking at. The one person who wasn't surprised that he was over as a big heel in WWF is everybody who ever saw him in Memphis. He is such a natural heel. He's just one of these guys you hate just the way he walks and everything about him. To bring him in as a face is stupid. But when Vince did see the mistake, turned him in the heel, put him with Jimmy Hart, and then he gave him the push. Because, you know, he will adapt. A lot of guys won't. Vince, you know, you said Vince is Vince for better or worse, and you're absolutely right. I mean, Vince, he's like, this is what I want to get over, and I'm either going, it's either getting over or I'm going to kill myself trying to get it over. I mean, if he sees talent in someone, he's pushing them. He doesn't care. And a lot of the time, the results are good. And when they're not good, it's almost like they don't matter. Like, the greatest example is Triple H. I mean, he did not get over right away. And Vince was like, I'm pushing this guy as hard as I can, and he's getting over, or I'm going to die trying. And, you know, that was more than 20 years ago. To credit Honky, what if Honky does, if Wayne does not get that over, what are we looking back on the Honky Talk Man years later uh, that, as that character? What are we talking? Are we putting that in the same category with the Royal Rooster? We're putting it in the same category as Corporal Kirshner. Just something that they thought was going to be big, and it just wasn't, and it was quickly forgotten. Seems seems goofier than Corporal Kirshner. If you look, uh, if it doesn't get over, it's like the Undertaker. The Undertaker looks good because it got over. If that yeah. doesn't get over, that's going to look really bad. Uh, they had big plans for that character long before oh, well. they casted Mark Calloway as the character. But yeah, it would have been just another like, oh, remember Outback Jack type thing. Remember the Honky Tonk Man. Yeah. But you know, they, it looks good when you win. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, Sean. What's your number four? My number four is Brett winning the title. And I, I kind of put Mick in here, too. But again, this goes to his involvement where somebody like Brett, more Brett, because Brett was kind of no one that size was ever considered. We talked about this on the show regarding Eddie uh, Gilbert. When he made a run at the uh, WWF in the late 70s, how it was just it was impossible. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Brett becomes by far the smallest. The smallest champ up until then was who was Backlund? Backlund and Backlund was not a small guy. No. And but Backlund also was an incredibly strong guy. So you can get away with being a smaller guy. Brett was not known even when he was a tag team. He was known as the technician. He wasn't the, you know, the excellence of execution, as Gorilla kept saying. When there was a muscle thing, that was Neidhart. So Brett never did any kind of power stuff. That was a real change for him. I mean, you could say he was forced into it due to the courts. People are forced into a lot of things, and they don't do them. He's smart enough to make the judgment, and I was a pleasant surprise when he gave it to him. I'm, I'm not a, the hugest Brett guy in the world, but it was an important thing for him to do. It was, and actually, I think Savage was the smallest guy that they made champion. But okay, yeah, Brett, yeah. Brett was a total— Savage is different, though. What's that? Yeah, Savage is different, though, because of his Savage almost played bigger because he was so nuts. I mean, that kind of intensity that Randy brought was just kind of made him like a different takes him out of the category. Brett was a legit smaller guy. He's a big guy. He's like not a big guy for a wrestler, though. I mean, we were used to Hulk Hogan being the WWF champion. Hulk Hogan was gargantuan. Or Bruno. 
or, you know, I mean, you know, superstar. And then the guys who are smaller, like Bob, even they're like, you know, incredibly strong. So it was basically acceptance of a different, a smaller style. This would, again, lead to some other problems, but it changed the business for good at that point. And you have to remember that the WWF had (laughs) to say they had a rough spring and summer of 1992 would be putting it mildly. I mean, they had the steroid scandal and then they had the sex scandal and, you know, the, and then they went off a cliff in terms of attendance, in terms of TV ratings. And it was almost like, you know, I was shocked when someone walked up to me and told they didn't walk up to me. I got a call saying that Bret Hart had won the WWF title in some town in Saskatchewan that I'd never heard of. And I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, well, you know, that's what happened. I don't know if they're going to put it on TV. And the next thing I know, Brett's on TV with the title belt. Obviously, he's the champion. And they, they put him in a lot of competitive matches. And then I remember watching the Survivor Series on tape. Yeah, I think it was the next night with some friends. And it was Shawn Michaels against Bret Hart, which was an excellent match. And my friends who were wrestling fans just couldn't get into it. It was like the guy from the Hart Foundation is fighting the guy from the Rockers in the main event. Come on. I was like, you know, I think it's going to be like this for a while because they can't push guys that were roided out. I mean, Ultimate Warrior and Randy Savage were wrestling in T-shirts, for God's sakes, like fat kids in the pool. There was another split that happened that may look obvious now, but may not have been at the time because it hadn't happened yet which was when they went smaller, you had two styles. You had Brett's more technical, old-schoolish kind of, you know, not really old, old old-school, but I mean, more of a technical style. And then you had the more high-flying Shawn Michaels. And WWF is usually dictated stylistically by the champion. However, the champion style is that generally will kind of work its way down. Was that a spot where they could have pushed a more technical style with Brett? I mean, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to have better wrestlers, a more exciting product, because they couldn't have roided up muscle guys anymore. So they had to try to substitute something. But I mean, as opposed to like more of an in-ring kind of technical, they went more with the kind of the Mexican style, the Lucha Libre, you know, uh, flying style. They went more into that, which unfortunately would end up causing a lot of injuries. Yep. But if they went completely with Brett's more technical in-ring type of style, athletically based could that have possibly ended up changing things in the long term uh hard to say i mean you know the wwf fan base was was used to their hulk hogan's their ultimate warriors i mean i i thought for sure they had an uphill battle going there but like i said like brett was a small guy the problem was he had been typecast as a tag team guy even though he he was the intercontinental champion for a while but they weren't used to the Michael style either no. because someone like Jimmy Snooker was never going to be world champion because of that, you know, not, not more because of that. But I mean, that kind of style was always kind of a featured attraction. The guy actually had to like work in the ring. Even someone like Hogan had to actually, you know, flyers were looked at as like a scrambling quarterback back then. It was nice to see, but you really weren't going to succeed on long term. So as opposed to going to where they did go, which was the Michael's high flying style. What if they did try to emphasize more kind of uh, physical, kind of in-ring, athletic kind of event, Eddie Gramish kind of style? I think that was done. I mean, Brett had a lot of charisma, and 
that really worked for him. It worked for him in the long run, but I think okay. that's going to that's going to win out over you know a guy being a good technical wrestler. Tell you what, let me get my number four in before we roll out our number ones, and I'll I'll try to be kind of brief with this. My mm-hmm. number four, I was shocked when I tuned in TBS. I think it was July twenty third, nineteen eighty five. If if it's not that date, it's right around there. Tully Blanchard had just lost the TV title to Dusty Rhodes. He lost his valet at the Great American Bash, which was July 5th, 1985. And I figured, and this was just the mindset, I hadn't picked up on the fact that the wrestling business was going to change. I'm like, all right, well, Tully is finishing up. He's going to be in Mid-South or Florida pretty soon. Baby Doll probably stay here with some other wrestler or something. But I, I, I took that as a clear sign that Tully was on his way out. He had been there for well over a year. And usually the heels at that time, you know, they lasted maybe a year in a promotion before heading out somewhere else. So much to my shock, Magnum TA loses the United States title, the number two title in that promotion to Tully Blanchard when Baby Doll dresses up as a security guard and KOs Magnum TA. So Tully went from a guy I thought was gone to having the number two belt in the entire promotion. Yeah, that's a good way. Actually, I'll be honest with you. I may be the only person in America, but when he lost the best of seven to Nikita, I was stunned. I, I, I was certain he was going to win. I, I was too. I thought for sure he would come back and win four straight from Nikita. But then at first I thought that was what was going to go on. And then I kind of figured out that no, Nikita's going to win this in the end. But anyway, Sean Goodwin, America Waits, what was your number one, the, the time you were most surprised as a wrestling fan? I'm splitting it in half, one good, one bad, because the one good one is kind of minor, and I've told the story here before. January 3rd, 1997, Webster Town Hall. <laughs> it says here the result, John already knows what I'm going to say. He said here the result here is listed Raven Champion Draw Sandman. What it leaves out is that the draw was called because some old lady near the comptroller's office was about to call the police because the battle had wandered its way into the city offices. And they were uh, attempting pinfall attempts in front of the city comptroller offices with us all chasing after him. This was ECW at their unpredictable, goofy best. If this was the kind of unpredictable they did all the time and not like, you know, mass transit, it would have been much better. But sometimes it spilled over into the more negative. My negative that I promised at the beginning was, and this is the more kind of serious one, is the cage match, uh, War Games, I think it was 1997, and Kurt Henning turns on Ric Flair. Kurt was supposed to be the fourth member of the Horsemen. He was replacing Arn, who was injured. The whole thing of them turning on, you know, of the rude thing that the, um, the NWO did, the, you know, mocking Arn, that didn't surprise me. I've been around wrestling long enough. Not that, you know. Part that surprised me is that the whole thing with Sting was running stale. So you needed to get to Sarcade in the summer at this point. This was perfect. You just made the horsemen viable again. So they could end up buying you the time to make the product interesting until you get to Sting. So what do they do? They put it with the NWO because they needed a 72nd member. The full horseman gimmick works when it's four, not yep. 30. Uh, I, I'll tell you what. I mean, I can't tell you how much I hated that angle. And it was clear to me that they were trying to make the four horsemen look as bad as they could 
every chance that they could. They had Arn Anderson get in the ring and practically beg Kurt Henning to take that spot. And Ric Flair did the same thing. They practically begged Kurt Henning to take it. And then Kurt Henning turned and the NWO, they got the last laugh once again. The baby faces were stupid once again. The four horsemen were stupid once again. And, you know, it just made Rick and the horsemen look terrible. I mean, Kurt Henning would rather, like you said, would rather have the eighth or ninth spot in the, in the NWO than have the spot that Arn Anderson begged him to take. It, it, you know what? That might have been the top thing that turned me off to WCW because pretty soon I was no longer watching. Oh, oh I, I knew they were getting caught right then. I knew they were, get, they were losing right then. It was no question about it. Because there was no possible positive business reason to do that. Yeah. Okay, that was just a greedy, stupid thing. And you made the point that they set it up so they can Yeah. Know who suffered? Everybody else. Because we oh, yeah. got six weeks of unwatchable wrestling because they had no way to get you to Starcade. Because how many shows ended with Sing descending from the uh, rafters? Oh, God. Pretty much all of 700 them. 700 in a row? It was all of them. It would have killed them to have like a month of Ric Flair mouthing off to these people. Because I didn't mind any of that. The whole thing with Beg and Kurt and the, the insult, and the, it was perfect. Then you have them up against the horsemen, and then, you know, when Sting comes back, there you go. It's a perfect stock gap. But no, they screw it up out of spite. Idiots. I, I, I was thinking that these people can't be this stupid, but I was wrong. <laughs> Never underestimate the stupidity. I mean, they were doing well. The one thing that I liked that they did out of that was Ric Flair was scheduled to have cosmetic surgery like a day later, a couple days later, and they filmed it to make it look like, you know, they were repairing Rick after all this damage had been done to his head when, the, you know, they Kurt slammed the cage on his face. But anyway, my number one is also a bit of a split. Uh, I'm going to split them into before I became a so-called smart fan and then after, because they really are different worlds and different mindsets. Probably the first Saturday in May in 1977, they announced that superstar Billy Graham had won the WWF title, then WWF title from superstar Billy Graham. They just kind of inserted it underneath, like, you know, we'll show you the footage next week, but we want to let you know that there's a new WWF champion, superstar Billy Graham. I was shocked. The only wrestling I had ever known was with Bruno Sammartino as champion. It had only been about 18 months, but I'd been captivated by it for that 18 months. And when they announced that, I mean, I remember just like, you know, feeling a chill. And I don't want to say it was all I could think about the rest of the day, but pretty darn close to it. And it was almost like, you know, I'm like, is it true? Can it be true? And then the next week, they show the footage from Baltimore where superstar Billy Graham puts his feet on the ropes for leverage to pin Bruno. And then the week after that, they have superstar Billy Graham on TV with the title around his waist. And that was another one that was just absolutely shocking to me. I know, Sean, I know this is a little bit before your time, but do you have any thoughts to share on that? Well, anytime Bruno loses is a big deal. It's only happened in New York once. I actually went and looked one time. I think I could only find one, and there was a couple of tag teams in there. But, I mean, the only straight single pinfall loss I could find in New York was Ivan, because this happened in Baltimore. 
So um, it's uh, obviously anytime. It's like when Hogan lost. It was after four years. It was stunning. You know, they, my understanding of it is that they didn't even, I, I know they didn't announce superstar Billy Graham versus Bruno Sammartino as the main event. They had a battle royal where the winner was supposed to get a, a title match against Bruno Sammartino. And if I get the story correctly, and I need to ask someone from Ball, I know who to ask, by the way. If I get the story correctly, superstar Billy Graham comes out and he says, I'm not going to participate in this battle royal. I just want a shot at Bruno Sammartino. And they just gave it to him. So they kind of kept it a secret that the match was going to take place anyway. And then if you were lucky enough to be in Baltimore that night, you saw something. Yeah, I, I remember him doing that. I just I didn't know that the winner got the title shot. I just thought that he was supposed to be in the Battle Royal too, and he he pulled out. I didn't. Wow, they, did, they didn't even advertise it. Why? Why would they do that? Ah, uh, I think they wanted to put the belt on. This is just my theory. They wanted to put the belt on Graham ASAP. I think he had debuted or returned on TV maybe five or six weeks earlier. I think he just hadn't been there long enough to do a build-up for a title match, like, you know, a four or five week back and forth on TV. The only time I can think of something like this happening was when Terry was the, quote, late sub for Dory. And part of the reason for that was because Terry had spent setting up his championship, had spent the last few weeks in Florida losing all the time. Mm -hmm. But smart business. Yeah, smart business, because now when he wins a title, all these guys are like, you know, every time you're up against them, so, I mean, that's the only thing I could think of, but I couldn't remember. I thought they built up Superstar almost immediately. I mean, he had been in the WWF in late 75 and 76. He left, I want to say, summer of 76, and he was already back March 1987. So had I known better, that would have been a hint and a half. I mean, he was not gone long at all. But my real number one as a smart fan, I actually have a 1B. If someone had told me, beginning of 1983, that Bob Backlund, first of all, would be, would be back in the WWF in any capacity, I would have been very, very surprised. But had someone told me, oh, and he's going to win the title, I would have been like, you're nuts. He's getting a big push, and he's winning the title. And then but that could have been like, well, okay, he had the title for like five days. He was the, you know, the ultimate transition champion. So I guess I can live with that. However, if at the end of WrestleMania 6 with Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, if someone had told me that the next WrestleMania main event would be Sergeant Slaughter, I would have been like, what? No. As WWF champion, I would have said impossible. First of all, him coming back to the WWF was a huge surprise back in any capacity because supposedly he and McMahon had a major fallout in 84. And obviously Vince is not pleased with Sergeant Slaughter going to uh, pro wrestling USA head up against Vince McMahon. Slaughter had been forgotten by 1990. He was, you know, he was a relic of the eighties. And then he comes back, which was again, a big surprise by itself gets a big push on TV. But wait, then real life gets into the picture. We have the Gulf War, and Vince McMahon kind of piggybacks Sergeant Slaughter to this real-life event, and Slaughter wins the WWF title at the Royal Rumble, only to lose it at WrestleMania. At the t- like I said, had someone told me a year earlier 
that all that was going to happen, I would have told you that is impossible, and that is my number one. I will agree with you on top. I was kind of out of it by that point, but it kind of shows you the position they were in. And uh, you know, I've made fun of this, to, you know, with their ridiculous because they were threatened. I am amazed that they actually thought this was going to fill the L.A. Coliseum. You know what? Here's here's the WWF mindset, okay? And you know what? It's true today. WrestleMania sells out before people have any idea what the main event was going to be. I think Vince jumped the gun on that a little bit. He's like, all right, well, every WrestleMania has been a sellout, you know, or you know, except for a couple of ones on two, but that was a long time ago. And he felt like the, the WrestleMania name brand was going to be the sell and Hulk Hogan regaining the WWF title, which you got to figure, you know, even the densest Mark knew Hogan was winning the title. That was going to be the draw. And I think he overestimated that as a draw. I guess. But I mean, as you said, he's been out of the loop. Slaughter. For so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this was, you know, even a couple of years earlier, but he had not been a factor whatsoever in the product for six years. Did he even do like roles behind the scenes or anything like he would do eventually with Austin and stuff like that? I don't even think he did that. No, I mean, well, look at it this way. The SummerSlam 1990 was it had a co-main event, a warrior against Rude and Hulk Hogan against the Earthquake. And the earthquake didn't exist until like early 1990 when Vince McMahon, you know, created the character and no one outside of Japan or Vancouver knew who the hell John Tenta was. So McMahon can say, okay, I can build this guy from the ground up. I can certainly do it with Sergeant Slaughter. Wasn't Slaughter's last major feud in the WWF against the Iron Sheik? Mm, I think his last major feud was with the Iron Sheik. Then they brought in Nikolai Volkov. And they thought Slaughter Volkov was going to do well, and it kind of flopped. His last major feud was against the guy who's hobbling down to the ring. Yeah. On the other side. I, I just, it's like, it's, it's just a bad visual. I mean, just take out the whole part with the, you know, the tastelessness thing, because, you know, we've been down that road before. Yep. But it, you're picking guys out who have been out of the loop forever. None of them are aging particularly well. It's not like Backlund who could still go. And by having him a heel, see that I'm, I'm better with because you can have him as a heel in that role. I thought he was very good and effective. Could it last for a long time? Probably not. It was like the old timers game. It's like, oh, good. Where's Luke Appling? I mean, this is the fastest hour of my week and we've, we've kind of got to wrap up. I'll leave us with this. Someone asked me in 89, like when the NWA was rebuilding, do you think they should bring in Sergeant Slaughter? I was like, oh my God, no. <laughs> like you said, what is it? The old timers game. But. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope you make the best out of the upcoming Memorial Day weekend. I want to thank our convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin, for being part of this show. I would also like to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for everything he does for us. Thank you again for listening, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Wash your hands. <laughs>